Okay, well, why don't you find your seat? We can, we'll have some time for fellowship later as well. I hate to interrupt such good fellowship, but Denise and the rest of the introverts were starting to get really uncomfortable, so... We're, uh, we're honored to have Tim and Joan Cummings with us, uh, original founding fathers, original big mama. Uh, so we're glad to have them. If you did not see them, uh, be sure and say hello to them uh, at the end of the service. Well, we interrupt our series on Genesis uh, to, to focus in on, on Easter. And uh, next week, we're going to begin a, a, about a six-week series on the church uh, and what the church is and what the local church is, and then we'll get back into Genesis uh, as well. Uh, but today, we, we focus in on what is, for us, the day of days, isn't it? Now, if you have a, a diary, you probably have certain dates circled uh, in your diary that you know are coming and that are big days for you, right? And so maybe you have uh, a birthday circled, uh, or maybe if you're a child, you may not have, you don't have a diary if you're a child, but uh, maybe you circle Christmas Day, right? That's a big day, and you're, you're looking forward to, to that day. If you're married, uh, you better circle your anniversary, right? Uh, that's a day that you need to, to circle. Uh, a leaving cert student, you're circling the days uh, of your exams, aren't you? So there are, at least you should be. So there are, uh, there are days that, you, that are coming up that you know are big moments and, and big days. Uh, because the reality is, in a lot of ways, our, our days define us. Uh, our days are big because they're important parts of who we are uh, as people. And that's true corporately as well. It's true for nations, uh, it's true, true for bodies uh, of people. I mean, you can't think about Easter without thinking, if you're Irish anyway, without thinking of the Easter rising. Uh, you know, so there are days that define not just individuals, but communities of people as well. And so as Christians, we come together on this unique day to celebrate what is for us the day of days. Because what we mark today uh, defines us as a called-out community uh, of people, a called-out community of faith. Because here's the reality. We're we're nothing more than a social club that happens to meet on a Sunday uh, apart from the resurrection. Apart from the resurrection, we're nothing more than just a a club that has chosen to meet. It was the, the resurrection. It was in the resurrection that God validated everything that Jesus said and did in his ministry. And most importantly, the dying uh, on the cross uh, as the only sufficient way to make payment for our sin. And so this day is everything in terms of our faith, as Adam read in 1 Corinthians 15, in terms of our future hope. It all centers on the fact that when they went to the tomb, it was empty. Everything centers on that. If not for the resurrection, the cross would have just been another Roman execution. 
There would have been nothing special about it, nothing unique about it. But it's the cross because of the empty tomb that then stands as the climactic event of human history. Everything in history comes to a point at the cross. And then in the resurrection, it pivots as hope is introduced into the world. And Easter's impact on us, let's be honest, Easter's impact on us is, should not just be a once-a-year uh, once thing. Every Sunday, we gather to celebrate the resurrection. And the first Sunday of every month, we take the Lord's Supper together as a way of marking the fact that Jesus died and is no longer dead, that he is risen. And so we are to, to live in the light of the reality of Easter every day of the year. And yet so often we don't, right? Uh, if we're honest, you know, many of us, uh, we, we live in the light of other things. And yet Easter should be impactful every day of the year. So this day confirms for us everything that God has said about Jesus. And what God says about Jesus then has radical implications for us and how we live each day of our lives. So as we think about this day, today, Easter, what I want to do is draw our attention to a future day. So let's take this day and let's think about, use it to think about a day that is coming. So whereas the, the cross and the resurrection stand as the climactic events of human history, this day to come is going to usher in the very consummation of history. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be the fulfillment of all of history. And so in your Bibles, in Revelation 4 and Revelation 5, what we have there is a worship scene. We find ourselves in the very throne room of God, surrounded by worship. In Revelation 4, that worship is centered on God Almighty. But, but then we see a new dimension as we peer into chapter 5. And it's here that we're going to see something about Jesus that should change us forever, that should impact us in our day-to-day -day lives. Who is the Jesus that we see in the Scriptures? And more importantly than that, what does it mean for us? Because here's the thing, we better get it right. Because if Revelation 5 is correct, then all of us are going to be held accountable for what we do with Jesus. If Revelation 5 is correct and what we say is correct, then one day every single one of us will be accountable to God for what we do with Jesus. There's a lot at stake. And so what I want us to see today are, are, are three things that the text, uh, three statements about Jesus that are unified around one primary thought. And so this is what I want you to take away. This one primary thought is this. That whatever Jesus is, whoever he is, he is not just an opening act in God's story. He is the main event. Jesus isn't just an opening act, a small bit player 
in what God is doing in history. Jesus is the main event. He is center stage in God's universe and what God is doing. So let's look at this scene in Revelation chapter 5. In verses 1 to 4, John is left to despair because no one is found who can secure God's ultimate promises of deliverance and judgment. Look in verses 1 to 4. Let's just read this together. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on a throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I, this is John, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So here we have this heavenly scene. And we have these scrolls in verse 1 that represent God's will for the bringing together, the wrapping up of all things in history. The, the promise, all the promises that God has made about judgment and about deliverance, those are all contained in the scroll. It's the outworking of everything in history. The wrapping up of, of all of history, if you will, in accordance with God's comprehensive plan. And as John looks around, a, a herald, an angelic herald, announces that no one has the credentials to enact the consummation of God's plan. No one has the, the moral authority, the, the divine authority to wrap up everything that God is doing and to bring ultimate deliverance and ultimate judgment. That there is no one worthy for God to bestow that kind of authority upon to act as his agent in accomplishing his purpose. And so just like we would do if we knew that was true, I mean, think about it. If you knew that, okay, there's no one who can accomplish this ultimate act of deliverance that all of us are hoping for, what would you do? You would do what John did. In verse 4, he weeps loudly because no one is found who is able to act as an agent. Because again, if no one can act as God's agent in bringing about God's deliverance, then there is no deliverance. There is no judgment, which means there is no ultimate resolution for all those things that have happened to you unjustly. So you can see why John weeps in verse 4. In fact, it's a little stronger than that even. He despairs because no one is able to bring about the ultimate deliverance and judgment that God has promised. It's a deep-seated grief that John feels. And you and I would feel it too if we realized this was the case. Uh, imagine all of your hopes of something better to come hanging in the balance 
is being told there's no one able to bring them about. All those things that you've pinned your hope on. And, oh, sorry, there's no one worthy to, to cause that to come about. So John despairs. And then another angelic being. As John says, one of the elders, this is a, a, probably a special class of angels that, uh, that, that were near the throne of God, comes onto the scene and announces to John that a conqueror has appeared who is able to deliver God's promised future. And so Jesus is described here in verse 5 as the conquering lion who is able to secure God's future. Look at verse 5. The el- and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. In other words, there's no need for grief. There's no need for despair. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The angel says, the lion has overcome. The lion has conquered. And that word lion, that's messianic language. It's to cause us to think about the promised Messiah, uh, the one who was, who was promised in the Old Testament to come and bring about the deliverance of God's people. He's the root of David. Again, it's messianic. It's, he is going to be a part. He is this, this, this Davidic king that was going to come and reign forever. This is the divine warrior who is coming to accomplish God's purpose in deliverance and judgment. And the angel says, he is worthy. He is worthy. He is able. He has the credentials to act as God's agent in bringing about God's purposes. But watch what happens when this victorious warrior, this lion, makes his appearance. Because when he does that, we see something surprising. As the crowd clears, and if you think about a, 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 a boxing match, right, and the, the smoke and the, the, you know, the, 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 the lasers and the smoke in the back as the, the champion makes his appearance and comes to the ring, as we turn our attention, as John turns his attention to see this roaring, conquering lion, see something surprising. He sees a vision not of a conquering lion, but of a slaughtered lamb. A a lamb that had been slain, taking center stage in verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures, again, this is center stage. Among the elders, I saw a lamb. Standing as though it had been slain. 
the conquering lion who is able to act as God's agent in bringing about God's purposes is a slaughtered lamb who makes his appearance. Again, he's not just a lamb, it's a slaughtered lamb. This is a lamb that is alive, having once been slain and dead. And this, we see this highly symbolic language, seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. This, this slaughtered lamb is divine and omnipotent and omnipresent who appears. And the lamb is worthy. In verse 7, he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And he is worthy to act as God's agent. And he's worthy in verse 8. He's worthy in verse 8, not because he is a celebrated military figure. He is worthy in verse 8 because he was slain. Look at what John says in verse 8. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sing a new song, worthy are you to take the scroll, for you were slain. The slaughtered lamb is worthy to do what no one else can do, not because he is a strong politician or a strong military leader, but because as a lamb, he was slain in obedience to the Father. And so what John wants us to see here about Jesus, not only is he the conquering lion who secures God's future, he is the slain lamb who secures our place in God's promised future. He is worthy because of his sacrificial death for us. Again, what the angels say, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain, because you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign forever and ever. The Lamb is worthy because he has died. The cross is the climactic event in God's grand plan. This is where he wins. This is where the lamb wins as he dies on the cross for our sins. This is where he becomes worthy to act as God's agent in deliverance. In his sacrificial death, in obedience to the Father. Again, worthy are you for you were slain. And we know he is worthy because he was raised. Because the tomb was empty. So the cross then becomes the place where sin and death were conquered for us. The cross moves from the place where the lamb is crucified to the place where our sin was crucified. 
And that sacrifice was accepted before God. And notice that this is a universal rescue. We've been set free from sin's oppression forever because of the shed blood of Christ. So in the cross, Jesus purchased a people once for all time. And it is universally available. That's what we see uh, in verse 9, the last part. You ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. It's universally available. But it is specifically applied to those who place their trust in the Lamb. Notice John doesn't say, you ransomed people for God, colon, every tribe and language and people and nation. It is you ransomed a people from God from every people and tribe and nation. It's universally available to any who will call and respond to the offer that's on the table. It's like receiving a gift. I can make available a gift here at the front for any who would come and take it. But in order to actually enjoy the gift, you have to come and receive it. The lamb was slain to ransom a people from God, and anyone is able to come and receive that gift. But you must turn and trust. There is the promise in what the lamb has accomplished of restoration, the hope of transformation, that God is making things new through the ministry of the lamb. He is bringing things back to what they were intended to be in verse 10. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign upon the earth. This is an incredible reversal of fortune. It's a reversal of what sin has done. God is turning the tables as his people move from defeat to victory through the ministry of the Lamb. And again, how do we know that all this is true? It is because the tomb was empty. We know that God has accepted what the lamb has accomplished. This is the irony of Easter, isn't it? That the the ultimate symbol of death, the Roman crucifix, has become the promise of ultimate victory because the lamb is no longer dead. Now watch this in verses 11 to 14. The lamb is actually given worship that is due God himself. Look in verses 11 to 14. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And as as it cascades out into all of creation in verse 13, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, 
be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Who is Jesus? Jesus is not just the conquering lion who secures God's future. He's not just the slain lamb who secures our place in God's future. But he is the divine king who is himself worthy of universal worship. What an amazing thing that the lamb is given worship that is due God himself. And why? Because he is God. And he is worthy. And as that circle expands to include everything in all of creation, everywhere, the lamb is put on the same plane as God in receiving worship and honor. Now, if this is how the scriptures view Jesus... If this is how God views Jesus, this roaring lamb who is worthy to receive all authority, who is worthy to act as God's agent in bringing about ultimate deliverance and judgment, how should we think about him? What should be our response to Jesus? If Jesus is the main event in God's universe, then he must be the main event in our universe as well. If Jesus is center stage in God's universe, then he must become for us center stage in our lives. Notice there's no election in this text. It's not as if there's like four candidates running for the one who's worthy to open the scroll. Jesus isn't running for this position like a politician would run for an office. No, Jesus is presented to us by God as King and Lord without concern for what we think or feel, or or believe. God has voted in the resurrection that everything is about Jesus. And who are we to say, yeah, but God, I really want it to be about this. No. There's no opinion poll carried out. There's uh, There's no canvassing. God has given all authority to the Lamb. And his vote is the only one that counts. If Jesus is Lord, if Jesus is worthy, then he is my Lord. He's my Lord. An old theologian, Abraham Kuyper, back in the early 20th century, said it this way. He said, there is not a square inch In the whole domain of our human existence, over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. There is not one square inch in all of creation over which Jesus is not Lord and King. 
And so what must we do today? What must be our response today? We must bow our hearts and bend our knees to this lamb. We must. We must turn our hearts to him, believing that he is who he says he is, believing that he is who God says he is. And that turning demands repentance, where we turn from anything else we might be looking at to the Lamb and trust. We must receive him as God has presented him to us. We must bow our hearts and bend our knees to the Lamb. But here's the thing. You want Jesus to be center stage in your life. You want him to be center stage in our life. See, here's the thing. We have to bow our hearts and bend our knees to the roaring lamb who sets us free. We're captive apart from the work of the lamb. We're enslaved apart from the work of the lamb. And so the reality is that it is for our good that we bow our heart and bend our knee to the roaring lamb because he sets us free. Here's the thing, and you know this. You are not good at building solid foundations. I'm not good at building solid foundations that last because the things that I typically build my life upon eventually let me down. They don't satisfy me in the long run. And the same is true for you. See, you want Jesus to be center stage in your life because he sets you free. He is the one who is good at building foundations. He is the one who is in control of all things. He is the one who does overcome the despair that we feel when it seems there is no hope. He is in control, and we are not. He is the one that's worthy to accomplish all of the, that the Father intends. There is hope for the future where there was none before. There is deliverance for anyone who will turn in faith to the Lord Jesus. And I wonder today if you've never trusted in the, this finished work that the Lamb has accomplished, if today would be the day that you would cease trusting in whatever it is you're trusting in. Maybe it's that you're doing a, a lot of good works. But maybe today would be the day that you would turn from that and trust in what John presents to us about this lamb, Jesus. That in his death, he has overcome what you cannot overcome. And by trusting in him, you can be made New. And see, here's what else I know about you because it's true for me as well. We need to change, don't we? 
There are things about our lives that we know need to be different. And we all experience the frustration in trying to bring about lasting change. And yet this is what God wants to do in us through the work of the Lamb. God doesn't return defective merchandise. He redeems it and he restores it. And this is what he longs to do, to make something new and something beautiful out of something that has been riddled and destroyed by sin. He can make it new. And he can make you new. He can make me new. And here's the deal. Your deepest eternal joy is at stake in what you do with Jesus. Our joy is tied to his glory. It's the ultimate paradox. But there is no greater joy, there's no greater freedom than in bowing your knee to Jesus as Lord. The two are tied together. When we surrender to his care, he works to make us what God created us to be, and there is no greater joy than being who God has made you to be. See, the resurrection proved that everything Jesus said was true. Even more than that, the resurrection proved that Jesus had indeed conquered sin and death so that we could be accepted by the Father through faith. The resurrection is proof that there is one who is worthy to bring about all the promises of God to which we so desperately cling. Who is Jesus? He is the raised, worthy lamb who died for you. And listen, not just you as in all of you, but you, and you, and you, and you. He's the worthy lamb who died for you. He is hope for the hopeless. He is strength for the weak. He is the eternal yes to all of our hopes in God's promised future. He is the lamb slain to secure our place in that future. He's the divine one worthy of universal praise. He is the God who became man, who died for me and for you. And listen, it will cost you everything you have. But there is no greater joy or peace or rest than giving over all of who you are to him. You can try to find it. Millions have, billions have, but you won't. There is no greater joy or peace or rest than giving over all of who you are to him. So, bow your heart and bend your knee to the roaring lamb who sets you free. This is the good news of Easter. You can't do better than Jesus. 
Can't do better than Jesus. The lamb was slain for your sin, but death couldn't hold him. And because God raised him, we know he is worthy. And we can trust that if we cling to him in faith, we can enjoy even now the eternal promises of God, eternal life with him. I remember as a kid uh, singing every well, we sang it more than just Easter, but especially on, on Easter Sunday, we would sing a song and it would, start, uh, it would start low and slow, thinking about Jesus in the tomb. Low in the grave he lay, Jesus my Savior. And then it would speed up and kind of erupt in this, uh, the, these final lines of praise as we thought about the that the tomb is no longer empty. He's raised. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain. And he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose. He arose. Hallelujah. Christ arose. Let's pray and then we're going to sing a couple of songs just in response thinking about the lamb as being worthy and raised. Father, thank you that you do not leave us in our sin. But Father, that you saved us. That you provided a ransom through the lamb who was slain. And Father, that in his death, any who would turn to him in faith and receive the gift that you have promised can receive life. What an incredible thing. Father, we pray that as we have heard, as we will respond in song, that you would stir our hearts through your spirit and if there are those who have never trusted in the Lamb, would you open their hearts to that message that they might receive it with faith and be saved? And Father, if there are those for whom Jesus has kind of moved to the side, maybe off stage a little bit, would you bring repentance that we might turn back and embrace Jesus anew as the main event in our lives. We thank you, Father, for your goodness and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.